Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome Christina Fink onto the Golders podcast. Christina is a two-time Olympic athlete and Olympic performance psychologist who has worked with elite athletes and international teams around the world. She is extremely highly regarded in the sporting world and shares with us her stories, experiences and also what she believes is important on an athlete's return to training after COVID. Christina, welcome and thank you for taking time to be with us on the Golders podcast today. For those who are less familiar with who you are, could you just share some of your background in sport for us? Yes, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, So my background in sports starts really with my family. Um, My parents were, we we didn't have a choice if we wanted to participate in sports. We had a choice of what sport do you want to participate in? (laughs) So very, very, uh, a family very oriented with sport, you know, to sports and, um, I am, I'm actually uh, 5'11", so 180, about 180 in height, uh, and the sport that I loved was gymnastics, which was not going to be the sport for me (laughs) because of my height, Uh, (laughs) but um, never, nevertheless, my parents let me, you know, like they took me to gymnastics class because that's what I wanted, and that's like the sport that I wanted, and so I started in gymnastics. I played some tennis. I swam. I did all of these different sports. And at 17, ended up in track and field. Uh, discovered the high jump, which was the most similar thing that you can get to gymnastics. Um, you know that I grew up in Mexico City, so a track and field was not huge there. But I discovered, you know, the high jump, which was pretty close to gymnastics. You know, you're throwing yourself on a mat arching, you know, backwards. And, uh, and I loved it. And um, within three weeks of actually training, like to really train with track and field, I broke a, a junior record that had been a record for 22 years or something like that. And all of a sudden, the least sports person in my house, because I have two brothers and a sister, and all of them were very athletic and, you know, scholarships and tennis and things like that. And all of a sudden I'm high jumping and my name is in the paper. And I was like, yay, <laughs> you know, because I broke this record. But uh, so I loved it. I loved, I loved the fact that I found this sport that I really could thrive in and I loved it. I, I, I had a really good time with it. And I also, growing up in Mexico City, being as tall as I am, um, it was hard being that tall. And I was always a little bit like, oh, I wish I was shorter. And all of a sudden I find track and field and I'm high jumping. And I start hearing people saying like, oh, I wish I was as tall as you. And I was like, what? You know, I, I couldn't believe that. Uh, my first event, uh, the first time I went to compete in the US was the Montsec Relays. And I get to the Montsec Relays in California and I see 20 um, 20 high jumpers that basically look like me. And I thought, wow, I found my species here. <laughs> so that was, so that was really fun. Um, I went on to 
compete in two Olympic Games. I qualified for the 88 and 92 Olympic Games. Uh, and then was actually quite fascinated with what makes us tick. What what are the things that help you perform better and what are what are things that hinder your performance? And so I actually ended up getting a master's and a PhD in performance psychology because I just really wanted to dive into what is it that makes you perform well or what are some of the things that really affect you when you that affect your performance. And and whether that is overtraining or not having enough sleep or you know or not being able to manage your emotions, you know, whatever that is, or actually being able to manage your emotions or being able to compete even when you don't get the full sleep that you need or, you know, so, so just fascinated by that facet. And uh, so went on to study that and went on to go to three Olympic games as a performance psychologist. <laughs> it's excellent. And you mentioned emotions and you've obviously experienced a, an array of emotions during your time from, being a gymnast and realizing it, it may not be your sport all the way to finding the high jump. Now, Christina, in, in competing in two Olympic games, so you mentioned your 1988 Seoul and 1992 Barcelona. Do you think you were best placed to understand the, the psychological demands that are put on athletes after your experience as an athlete too? I, yes, it definitely gives me an insight. And I, it was it was funny because the 88 Olympics were a great experience for me. I loved every minute of it. It was uh, it was an incredible experience. I it was everything that I dreamed of. And 92 was a nightmare. <laughs> and so it was the other side of it. Right. And so from um, having a coach that I really trusted and, and he had to leave eight months before the Olympics. He went back to Poland. Uh, his wife was sick with cancer. And so he left. And so I end up with a new coach who I really respect and love, but eight months before the Olympics was just not enough for us to be able to figure out exactly how to work. Um, and, um, ended up overtraining, ended up doing a lot of things that, that didn't go the way they needed to go and ended up performing really poorly in the 92 Olympic games. And so I actually stepped away from, from, from sports for a little bit because I thought I, I can't do this. I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have anything to do with sports. I'm going to go to a different arena and to a different area. And then ended up, um, having a couple of athletes, uh, ask me if I could help them, you know, and I was like, how am I going to help you? Like, it, it, and they were like, well, you've been through the good and the bad. So you know what it's like on both sides. But for me, it was really important to step away from it for a while, just to be able to not make my experience kind of like contaminate other people's experience. You know, like I, I don't want to assume that I know because I went through this. Like, I know what I went through. I don't know what you're going through because you're a different person. And so I want to make sure that I can actually listen to you and having had an experience. And so injuries, for example, when I'm working with an athlete who has been injured, they say something like, well, you know what it's like. And I just say, I know what it was like for me. What is it like for you? Because I can't assume that I know because I went through it because we're completely different people. So it's going to affect us in a different way. So it was nice having the, the background, but then actually being able to separate yourself from your reality so that you can hear other people's reality yeah athletes are going to start to filter back into training we know this it's already started to happen in 
different parts of the US, equally over in the UK now, but how can coaches best support their athletes during this integration period? That's really gonna, that's a, that's a good question, but I'm gonna ask you a question. What age, what age group are you talking about? <laughs> because it's gonna be different depending on the age, for that, sure. That's a super, <laughs> that, thank you for that, that's a super question. If it was to say the nine to 12 year olds and then from 13 onwards. Okay, so if we go to the little ones, uh, you know, the foundation, uh, for me, the foundation has to be fun no matter what. So pre-COVID and now after COVID, you know, they are missing, they're missing their peers, they're missing, you know, they're missing their teammates. They get to come back and, and, and you have to be able to say, especially with the younger ones to like that they're not, you know, like all over each other and that they're because we still have to follow some guidelines as we get back. And so for coaches to make sure that, you know, I think that the best coaches for youth are the coaches that are really creative. And so for you to make sure that you're thinking of exercises where having a distance is fun. So making sure that you're creating exercises where, where you can still challenging, where you're challenging them, but, but they can still be apart so that they're not so close together. I think that's one of the things that you need to take into account. You need to take into account that kids are going to come from different experiences from COVID. So you're going to have kids who have been, whose family members have been exposed. You could have kids who have actually had someone who could have lost someone or kids who have not had any contact with it at all, right? And so you need to make sure that you have a little bit of that information because there are gonna be kids who are really anxious about it and kids who don't think anything of it and don't actually take it very seriously. So you need to understand what guidelines you're gonna follow as a coach or your club, what you're doing and, and, and how you best support those, those athletes. And that, that's true for whether they're really young or, or in the 13 and up. You know, you need to understand where they're coming from. The other thing that you need to understand is that some athletes, some players have had a chance to really keep up their conditioning and be able to, you know, I don't know, do, you know, all of these challenges that they had online of, uh, you know, doing, doing different reps or doing different things. So some people are going to be in better shape than others. And you need to have a little bit of patience with that. And understand that once they get back into it, they might want to feel that oh, this is where I left off. So this is where I need to start. And they might start way back here. So you need to have that patience with anything that you do. And obviously this social inclusion that's now coming back into the life. Is there any advice you can give to, to the coach in regards to practice design to actually help to integrate and so that players are dropping into the environment again, which they've missed. So the practice design, uh, I think that one of the things that this is shedding a light to is the fact that you need to be very, very intentional about what you're doing, right? And so your practice design needs to be intentional with what you're doing. And, and this gives you a great opportunity to, if you weren't doing it before, um, you should be including the psychological aspect, whether it's an emotional aspect or the social skills that you want to, the, the social and, and, and um, so the social skills that you want them to learn, uh, the psychological skills that you want them to learn. So if you want them to um, 
to develop resiliency. There's going to be certain exercises that you're going to do in your practice, right? But but now you're thinking about it. Now you're thinking about what are the psychological and social skills that you want them to learn. Because unfortunately, for a very long time in football or soccer, depending on where you're hearing this, <laughs> um, you're going to have coaches that don't really, uh, that kind of take that for granted, you know, that you kind of think, oh, that's that's going to happen, where they're not integrating that part, that component into their training. It just kind of, they think it happens organically, but it actually doesn't, because just like your first touch, you actually need to learn to be able to manage your emotions. You need to be able to recognize what emotion are you feeling. So in a training session, especially with the younger ones, I would start with how are we feeling? And something as simple as how are you feeling? Is it there, there, or there? That simple. For the most part, you're going to get, especially if the kids really like being there, for the most part, kids are going to be happy and they're going to be like that, right? If you get a kid that goes like that or like that, it gives you an opportunity during a warm up or whatever to get a little bit closer and say, what's going on? You know, just like a water break, little chat, you know, what's happening? Is it getting better? Are you happy to be back? Are you? And, and then they can actually name the emotion that they're feeling. So why is it there? Well, because I'm like, because I don't know, I feel, I feel, I don't know, I feel like stressed or you know and and they might not have the right word for it you know they might not say anxious or stressed or overwhelmed but they might say not feeling right and i'll give you an example i had a kid in a in a workshop um <laughs> i was invited to this club and it was with 12 you know around 12 years old but i had a couple of young ones that were you know siblings that jumped into the workshop that were i had an 8 and a 10 year old in the workshop as well and so I'm making sure that I'm being very, you know, the talking, how do you feel like before a game? Are you feeling like super happy about it? What does your stomach feel like? And one of the kids, a 12 year old sa said, I feel butterflies, you know, in my stomach, which is something that, you know, people describe quite often, you know, like that feeling like that flutter feeling. And, and the eight year old says, I'm okay when they're butterflies. I don't like it when they're bats. Mm -hmm. And I was, shocked because it's an eight-year-old I was like oh my god he's eight he's feeling bad <laughs> it's like okay but to me it was a great description so it, and it gives you a little bit of when it's butterflies it's okay because you can manage them when they become bad you feel like you're going to throw up and it doesn't feel good and so how do we manage it how do we bring it back to butterflies right because butterflies because they say you know like when it's butterflies it feels good okay so how do we do that and so showed them a couple of just simple breathing techniques right uh um and so just with something like that you can you can actually incorporate some of these things and actually start educating players to it's okay to feel things we all feel things it's okay to feel what you feel what can you manage and how can you do that so just having an informal chit chat with with the athletes as they come along or during the practice helps to resonate and get a feeling of how they're at, where they're at this place. What advice would you give to parents who then have athletes who are going back into practice? So they've been isolated for a period of time and now they're going back into a training environment. So the one thing that I would say is ask questions that are not, uh, how many goals did you score today? <laughs> Was such and such in practice or in training or, I would say, hey, how did it feel to be back out there? 
And so it, when you say, how did it feel or what, what was your favorite part of today? And let the, and let the, and let the players talk, you know, let your child talk, let your child tell you what it was like. Um, even if you were watching, I mean, you could, one of the things that I see parents do is they're watching a training session and the kid comes out and, 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 and the kid might even ask, what did you think? And the parent jumps right in and starts saying like, oh my God, this, this happened and that happened. And, and, and then when you did this or when, or you need to be better at that, or, you know, you need to ask for the ball more, you need to communicate or, you know, and they just start jumping into giving advice or, um, I would say, listen to your kids, you know, ask questions and listen to their experience. So how was it today? Uh, when you say, how was it today? If your kid's not a talker, they're probably going to say fine. And so I have a lot of parents telling me this, that the, the kid just goes fine. But if you say, what was your favorite part of today? They can't say fine. <laughs> sure. What was your favorite so part of today? What did you struggle with? So really, really open-ended questions that are not intimidating. So not like, why do you think this happened? No, it's just like, what was your favorite part of today? What did you struggle with? And so, and, and, and then listening to what they struggled with, because then you could probably help them with whatever they struggled with, you know? So, okay. so saying it's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to feel it's okay to feel overwhelmed right now and start naming those things. Like start putting names to the emotions that you're feeling. Um, you can be overwhelmed with happiness or you can be overwhelmed with sadness. You know, like, it, I mean, because the feeling is like, oh, I overwhelmed means like I, I'm, I'm not managing it very well. Right. And so when they surprise yeah. you and you're like super, I mean, I, I'll give you an example of a player that I was working with in the first division. He has a very big game. Um, and uh, it's it's a big rivalry in Mexico, and this player is is ready, and uh, he's on he's uh, he saves this this penalty right. The goalkeeper. Uh, this is a long time ago in the, in the in, in the early two thousands, and this he saves a penalty kick, and then he's so excited about it that in the corner kick they score on him. <laughs> And he was, he couldn't manage that emotion, right? He was so excited about saving the PK that in the corner kick, he's a little bit distracted and he ends up getting scored on. And so we talked about it and we talked about how even, even good emotions can be very distracting. So it's actually making sure that you are labeling the emotions for, for the players, you know, that you as a coach are recognizing it. And you as a coach could actually even share I am so excited about being back that if I'm talking too fast or if I'm, or if I'm being too pushy, let me know, you know, like if I'm, if I'm overwhelming you, let me know because I'm really excited to be back. So sharing up in this commonality helps the athlete put perspective from their perspective and we're actually we're working together. Mm-hmm. We're caring for each other. And I, I have those same emotions. They might articulate it differently, of course, different words, but that actually opens the, the athlete up. Absolutely, because what you want, I mean, you want to role model those behaviors, right? Sure. So if you pretend like you're always, you know, and, and athletes, even very young athletes, get the sense of where the coach is. I had a coach with an under 12 team that starts explaining at halftime. You know, this is obviously pre-COVID, but he starts explaining it at half, ha- at half time and he's 
so excited about it that he's like putting cones, you know, to explain, you know, where the players are and whatnot. And he's doing it all from his perspective and the players are on in front of him. So the players are not seeing what he's seeing. Right. And so one of the young players goes like, which ones are we? <laughs> like, I mean, like, <laughs> I don't get it. And I was so happy that, and, and the coach was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? Okay. And so he, came over to the other side and he's like, okay, let me redo it. You know? And, but if this kid hadn't said it, they probably would have gone in and, but the coach actually admitted like, Oh my God, what am I thinking? I'm so excited. You guys are doing so well. Uh, sorry about that. And then he jumped into the other side and the kids saw it as so normal, you know? And it's like, and so with a coach like that, then it's okay to make a mistake because when he made a mistake, he was able to recognize it and correct it. So then it opens up the door for the kids to be able to do that as well. It's a really good point, Christina, with, with the coaches, that they are also human. Mm-hmm. And being open and receptive to mistakes, it would have been very easy for the coach in that moment to say, well, you're not paying attention to me. I'm explaining it. Mm-hmm. When in reality, he was explaining it, but he was explaining it for him. And not understanding the the perspective of the players. And if he'd have gone away and said, well, you're not listening to me. You need to listen more often. It would probably close off the next time something like that happens. The kid's even asking the question. And, And from there on, it could be a snowball effect to the point where they don't want to ask questions. And they'll just be stuck in this limbo of actually not having any idea what the coach is saying. And it could be really good information. It's just, it's just done from the wrong perspective. It's just backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I had one coach who I'm very careful and I, and I give coaches advice on, you know, when, if you say, what do we think or what do we feel or how happy are we? Uh, it's like you're, you're trying to get them to be on your, you know, so you want to say we because it's us and it's a team. But at the same time, I want to know what you are feeling. I don't want to say, what are we feeling? Because then that, that means that we all have to agree on what we're feeling. And just right now with the three of us, we're feeling different things. So if we say, how are we feeling? I would hope that we're feeling comfortable, relaxed, having a good conversation. But you could also be feeling stressed or you could also be feeling you know, anxious about something or distracted or you know and if I say we then then it has to be all of us in the same one right and so one of the coaches that I worked with would say what do we think at halftime right and so it became a guessing game because the kids would start to try and guess what he was thinking right so what are we thinking and they would be like ah that we need to do uh that we need to get back quicker and he was like ah nope (laughs) I was like, okay. So what I ended up doing is I filmed him. And then, you know, these are obviously coaches that I have a relationship with and are very open to getting this feedback and they ask for it. So if you ask me for feedback, I'm going to give it to you. You decide what you do with it. And I'm very careful with the way that I provide feedback because if I'm giving feedback, I'm giving you feedback to help you, to help you grow, to help you, you know, become better, um, to, uh, to, 
motivate you to say you're doing well, right? Uh, so when I get feedback, I'm very careful about making sure that the person can hear it, right? And so the time and the space when you give this feedback is important, uh, especially when you're giving developmental feedback, right? And so when I was talking to this coach, I just said, let's look at this video. Like I, I said, look at the kids and look at what you're asking. And he's looking at it and he goes, oh, God's sake. You know, he's like, oh my God, it's the guessing game. And so I didn't even need to say anything. I just needed to sit with him and say, look at, look at this. What, what do you think about this? You know? And so once he was able to see that, he changed it to say, what are you guys thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on from your perspective? Because I'm going to give you what I see from out here, but I want to hear it from you first. And so then it, it, it turned into a different conversation. So I've got a question. You mentioned a player that you worked with that saved a penalty mm-hmm. and then on the next corner kick he conceded, which huge range of emotions in that. So let's just paint the picture. He saves a penalty, concedes the corner, you're now losing 1-0. As a coach, what strategies would you suggest to best equip players with dealing with losing or dealing with some sort of emotion, whether it be anxiety or stress from something that's taken place during a performance? It almost looks like we rehearsed it. (laughs) I like it because I love this question. Um, So one of my favorite, and this is a clip that I use all the time, there's a, um, I actually had some ties to Real Madrid. Uh, My thesis advisor was a sports psychologist of Real Madrid. So I've always had a little bit of a tie with Real Madrid. So when Real Madrid and Barcelona are playing, I really admire both teams. I I love the way they play. uh, But I, I tend to be a little bit biased towards Real Madrid, right? And I'm watching a game uh, where Pep Guardiola was still the coach and um, Valdez was a goalkeeper. And it's Real Madrid, Barcelona, and they pass the ball back to Valdez, and he makes a mistake. This is a this is several years ago, but he makes a mistake, and they score a goal on him. First couple of minutes of the game, Real Madrid is up 1-0, right? And so you see Pep screaming at Puyol to give the ball back to Valdez at the beginning of the game. You know, within the first, he's like, give it back to Valdez, and give it back, give it back, and just... And so for me, that's a, that, that's a great clip that I use as an example, even if it's a little bit old, because for me, that's a perfect example of the coach managing, like saying, with telling Puyol to give the ball back to Valdez, he's telling Valdez, I trust you. Like, yes, you made a mistake, but I don't care. Like, I still trust you, and I need you to be a part of this. It was a great, they, Barcelona ended up winning that game three to one. <laughs> And so it was, but it, and to me, it was a great example of this coach actually saying, I don't care if you made a mistake. I still trust you. We're not going to change the way we play. We're not going to change our strategy. I believe in you. And you're, and, and he's also sending a, a message to the teammates to say, you need to believe in him as well. And so, so they do this and then they end up, you know, they end up scoring. I think two of the goals came from, uh, distribution from Valdez or, you know, at least one did. I remember that clearly. I, and the other one was something he had some, and, and he had a, a, a superb game too. Like he had several saves. It was one of his best games. 
So, and then hearing Valdez talking about that afterwards, he has a book, you know, talking about stress and stuff. And, and Valdez actually talks about the fact that, that the coach trusted him, made him trust himself. So um, confidence is something that you, for me, confidence is really a choice. If you've done everything that you needed to do, uh, both as a coach and as a player, like if you've done everything that you needed to do, confidence becomes a choice because if you're prepared, then you can choose to be confident because you know how to react to certain things. You can also choose not to be confident and choose to focus on your mistakes and focus on the things that are going wrong. And, and then that takes your confidence down. But, you know, you have like that strong belief uh, and, and you've done everything that you need to do to prepare yourself and you've, you've gone through the what ifs and you have different solutions for them, then confidence is something that you, that you can choose to, yeah, I'm, I'm going to believe in myself and I, and, and I know that I can do this, you know, because I'm ready. But you actually need to prepare for it. And I can relate to it. I can relate in regards to being in those situations as a player and knowing that if there was a mistake, because you're going to make a mistake in every game. Now, you mentioned mm-hmm. you're a Real Madrid fan, but I'm a... I'm a Messi fan, so I'll, I'm going to use Messi as, a, as an example. For me, he's, he gives the ball away and will give the ball away in every game. Mm-hmm. But five minutes later, he might beat five, six people and put one into the top corner. And mm-hmm. he's obviously very confident in his ability. And like I said, I've experienced that where you know there's going to be a mistake coming. It's how you, how you manage it. Um, I think also the way that the coach deals with it because with Valdez giving the ball away it could have been very easy in a high pressure situation for the coach to for for Pep Guardiola to be irate scream and shout and say don't give him the ball and Mm -hmm. what were you doing what were you thinking you weren't switched on you're not paying attention you've not been listening to what Mm -hmm. I've been saying and all of a sudden the athlete's going well wow I don't want the ball and I, I see it especially in younger kids, that has a, a longer lasting impact because the older you get, I think the the more you, you're normally able to control your emotions and to deal with things. Now, with that being said, in the development of young athletes, so we'll go in the foundation age to start with, what are your thoughts around competing to win versus competing to improve? So I find it, uh, I find the way that when you're, especially in the younger ages, if you're competing to win, then just go to a league where you're superior because if the objective is just to win, you know, just, just if you're, if you're in the A league, go, go play in the E league and you'll win every time. Yay. You know, (laughs) um, I did, (laughs) I did a study, um, I did a study several years ago, uh, with uh with it was spain mexico the u.s uh we did a survey uh on parents and 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 how they felt about uh winning and and in spain portugal uh and brazil it's important to win you know for parents and this was parents of of the of kids between the ages of 12 and 18 right uh in the survey the parents from brazil portugal and um Spain, it was 62% important 
which I think is pretty high, but it's still, you know, it was 62. In Mexico, it was 65% important for them to win. In the U.S., it was 91. And so, so for me, that's like a, you know, when you say it's, it's, it's that important to win, then, then, then go play in a league where you can always win. Because the actual, what's, what's actually important is uh, for, for it, it, in the younger ages is for them to fall in love with the sport. Because if you love it, you're going to want to do it more. And then if you do it more, you're going to be more exposed and you're going to have more opportunities. So you want to have them fall in love with it, right? Uh, if you have a coach that's always screaming or always belittling you or saying that you are not good enough or how could you make that mistake or pulling you out if you make a mistake, that's not going to help at all. And then there's going to be kids who actually get turned off and just don't want to do the sport anymore. So, you know, understanding that at times I think that that football – uh, is, is a game of survivors, you know, like the people that get to the very top, it's like they've survived all these different things. And some of them have had excellent coaches in their youth, but some have really had to survive and had to kind of put up with, with certain things where you almost have like this shield. Uh, the problem with having a shield is that you have a shield all the time. And so then when you get a coach that you should actually listen to, you're, you're still not listening because you have that shield right? Because you've had to have it to protect yourself. Um, and so when you get a coach that, that could actually benefit you, it's hard and, and, and it's hard to get through that shield at times or that barrier. So, um, so when you're talking about winning versus, I mean, winning, who doesn't like to win? So I'm not saying like th that you shouldn't teach them to win, but you need to teach them that winning is out of your control completely out of your control. So you need to focus on your process. You need to focus on how do you get better at what you do every day? Because if you're focusing on what you can do to get better, then, then winning is, so I have a, a, a goal when, when we talk about goal setting, which is one of the things that I, that I use quite often. I don't talk about goal setting as, you know, we hear about all the smart goals and all of these different things, which is, which is a good thing to have. But I talk about, okay, what is a process? Where do you want to get to? And I have players and I have, you know, my, my own son is, is a, a professional soccer player, right? He plays for LAFC and um, he is, you know, his dreams as he was three years old was to be a professional soccer player. You could have parents that would say, Oh, that's almost impossible. Very few people get there. I was like, yes, that's awesome. Let's have that dream. You know, let's go for it. I don't know if he's going to make it or not, you know, like what, who am I to say, don't have that dream. So I was like, sure, let's have that dream. Right. But then what are you doing every day? And then what are the choices that you make every day that help you stay on track with that? Right. Because uh, whenever you're in an Academy, whether you are in Mexico, in Brazil, in anywhere in Europe, in the UK, if you say, and in the U S when I say, how many of you want to be a professional soccer player? All the hands go up. Uh, for me, it's a question of how many of you are you, how many of you are willing to do what it takes to be that? There's going to be injuries in the way. There's going to be bad coaches, good coaches, supportive people in the way, not supportive people. As you get, as it gets higher, it becomes more pressure. So so what happens in that trajectory, right? And so who's helping you through that? If you're focused on the process the entire time, um, you're going you're gonna to have more of a chance. The people who are, you know, who are like winning is important. And we've seen this in the U.S. time and time again, 
where winning is important, then you end up recruiting kids that are very big or that are very athletic. And you might not, I mean, with you're a very big fan of, of Messi. Mm -hmm. I know that Messi, uh, because I've worked with some people in, uh, who were uh, in the Barcelona Academy, at one point when Messi was young, it was, they were in the fence if they were going to keep him or not. And they decided to keep him. Uh, Antoine Griezmann, they decided not to keep him in, in a couple of teams in France. They decided to get, you know, he wasn't good enough. So Real Sociedad in Spain took him over and then Antoine Griezmann developed into the player that, you know, in Real, in Real Sociedad and then in Atletico de Madrid and then went on to, to, uh, to Barcelona. So you need to be focusing on the process, on how do you help them become better every day? That was a really long answer. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's interesting when you did the survey. Where, if I've got this correct, in Spain, winning 62%. In Mexico, 65%. The importance of winning in the US, 91%. I think winning, is it's all relative. Winning to pass a ball is, is an element of winning. They have succeeded in transferring the ball from A to B, and it's been it's been successful. Winning the game, however, is obviously something that's out of our control. But when we look at helping to develop athletes to reach their optimum performance, what qualities the coaches need to possess to help unlock this potential, Christina? Coaches need to be teachers, number one. <laughs> They have to be teachers because they, they need to be able to role model what they're talking about. They need to be humble. They need to be able to say when they make a mistake, you know, when, when the coach makes a mistake, they need to be able to say that they've made a mistake. They need to, it doesn't matter what age you talk about. I was in a conference with, with Carlo Ancelotti and he was talking about how many languages he has gotten to speak even at a basic level, because one of the biggest things for him was to be able to communicate with his players without a translator. So when he's coaching Real Madrid, that needs, that means he needs to speak six languages, right? I mean, at least at the basic level and, and the effort that he made to do this as a player, you feel a different connection to somebody who's asking you about how you are, uh, how's your family, uh, you know, in, in your own language. Even if, even if it's a little bit, uh, even if it's hard. I remember um, we had a player in one of the clubs that I worked with uh, whose language was French. And he was pretty, pretty new to the, to, the, uh, to the American scene and couldn't speak any, any English at all and ended up having a pretty bad uh, injury uh, that he required, you know, ACL injury and and now we have to take him to the ER and he has to get an MRI and we're in a preseason in Florida and he's struggling. And, and I speak a little bit of French. I, I, I used to speak a lot more because I was, I did my training camps in France, but, um, but I haven't used it in a long time. So now I'm, I'm in a situation where I'm speaking the little French that I, it made an instant connection with this athlete because he was able to actually express himself in French and what I didn't understand, you know, between French, Spanish and, and English, I was able to piece some things together. Uh, now we have like, you know, these uh, where, where I could actually 
type in something with my in my phone and, and get a translation and say, but actually say it, not just show him the phone, but actually say it and and start talking to him, explaining what going into an MRI machine is going to be like, you know, how he's going to make me feel a little bit claustrophobic or whatever, but the music and this and that. And, and just being able to communicate in their language, it, you know, it opens a door. So actually being able to, and I'm not saying that every coach needs to know all of these different languages. I'm just saying that you need to make an effort to really get to know the people because, and you've heard this time and time again, where, where, where people don't know, don't care about what you know, they, they want to know if you care about them. I worked with a track athlete who ended up leaving a university because the moment that this athlete got hurt, he just was completely ignored by the coach. And so the following season when he was healthy, he was like, I'm transferring out of here because for you, I'm just a pair of legs and I'm so much more than that. I'm out, you know? So for me, it's the coaches, the qualities that coaches need to have is to care. They need to have courage to have difficult conversations. They need to know how to get feedback. Um, they, they need to, know that they don't have all the answers <laughs> yeah do you know when you there's a word that you used the trust and, mm -hmm. and obviously that's something that comes over a period of time where athletes are actually sensing they sense and feel your words they, they sense the sincerity of it and with you actually working with olympic medalists world champions to professional and national soccer teams how do you personally build trust in what can be perceived to be extremely tight units because it's taken a period of time for the group to bond and then you come along how do you develop the trust so uh for me trust is i, I put trust in uh why do you trust a person anybody that you trust you trust them because they're you know because they have credibility so let's say they have credibility. I have a certain level of credibility when I come into any sporting situation because I'm a two-time Olympian. So that gives me some credibility to start off with. So I'm at an advantage there, <laughs> right? Because having been an athlete helps me. So that, you know, like, uh, so that gives me a little bit of credibility where people go like, oh, like she's been through it, right? Then I'd say that I've been to three Olympic games as a performance psychologist, or I have worked with X amount of football clubs, right? And so that gives me another level of credibility. Then when people actually reach out, I'm reliable. I'm there for them, right? Uh, so when, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. If I say I'm going to connect you to this person, I do it. If I say I'm going to be there, I'm there. I, and I'm there on time. Uh, I am, uh, so, you know, you need to work on your credibility. You need to work on your reliability. You need to, you know, it, do what you say you're going to do, right? And then the, the last part is like, I actually care about people a lot. <laughs> so, so it's, I, I, so there's like that level of intimacy where, where I really care about you and I care about you as a person. I don't care about you as this athlete or this superstar or this, and I'm not trying to gain anything out of our relationship, which is the big, the biggest one that you could have, you could have reliability, credibility, and, you know, and care or intimacy. But if people perceive that you're in it for you more than more than just to help them, then they they don't trust you as much. So for me, it's like I don't need to be in the in the team picture. I don't need to be 
I don't need one of my one of the things that I require in any club that I work with is that I will share information that is relevant, uh, but the confidentiality needs to be big. You need to respect the fact that they can talk to me and they know that I'm not going to talk to you. And I can suggest to a player or an athlete, depending on the sport that I'm working with, I can suggest talking to the coach or talking to a parent or talking to somebody. Uh, I was, I would say, I think that this is information that the coach should have, but if the, if the athlete decides not to share it, that's their information, not mine. So I will help you navigate that. Um, I think they should know it, but if you don't want them to know it, it's okay. At the same time, I, I talk about some of, some things are performance related and, and the coaches do need to know and, and the athletes need to know as well. So when we're talking about something that's affecting your performance, because you haven't slept in, I don't know how many days, because you have a sick child or something like that, that's information that needs to be shared. Uh, again, it's going to, depending on the level of trust, I'm going to say, I really think that you, that you could, now I've had coaches that I've worked with where I have information from players of something that's going on in their lives that they don't want to share and they don't want to share it with anybody, but I know about it. And all of a sudden I'm in a training session and I hear the coach getting down on this kid quite a bit. And I'll just walk behind the coach and I just say, ease up. And the coach automatically knows. Now, obviously I have a bond with this coach and I, and the coach knows that I'm not babying anybody. <laughs> I'm not like, Oh, you don't yell at them. You know, it's not that. It's just like there's something going on, back off, right? So I just say, ease up. Coach then goes to this player at the end of the session and goes, hey, are you okay? I noticed that you were quite distracted today. And the player decided to talk to the coach about what was happening. If the coach had kept on yelling and hadn't asked what, what was happening, the player would have never opened up. So it's a little bit of what what are you doing when you when you get into these scenarios? When I was working, I got invited to work at a club in Mexico, uh, and I you know and I got invited by the president of the club to work with the club. And I said, "Does your coach want me there?" And uh, well, I don't know. Let me talk to the coach. And I actually know the I I knew that coach quite well. I you know we had been athletes at some point in our careers together. Uh, and I ended up going out to lunch with him. And I said, do you want me in? And he said, to be honest, I don't. Um, I'm on my way out. And if you come into the club right now, they're gonna take you down with me when I go out. And so I don't want you in right now. And I was like, that's fair. And I just said, sorry, I can't come in right now. A year later, he was in a different club in a different environment and he brought me in because I was respectful of him because I was respectful of, I'm not going to go into your space to try and be, you know, like, especially when you're coming from the top, that they may feel that you're going to be the, the ear of the president or, you know, like I have like zero association with that. And I'm very, very respectful of wherever I'm working. I'm very respectful of the relationship of the coach with their athletes whether it's a team and it's different when it's a team sport than an individual sport, but especially in team sports, I'm incredibly respectful of that relationship because it should be the strongest relationship there is. And you should be there as an aide, not as a protagonist. Christina, 
this has been wonderful what a great insight to the work that you do as a performance psychologist you can never stop learning no matter how old you are and being open i think the nice thing that you've just shared with us is having the having the honesty to actually build this trust being caring and the consistency of your message which comes through in this interview or in this chat <laughs> so thank you ever so much for creating the time and the space to be with us today and on behalf of david and i we we've I've taken loads from it and i'm sure david had as well and i'm sure many many of the listeners will have how can people get hold of you can they can they reach out to you at any point do you have a website or a, an email address Yes, uh, they can reach me. Uh, it's Christina Fink uh, at hotmail.com. I have a website in design for uh, C Fink Consulting. With with the middle in the middle of this pandemic, some of those things fell through a little bit, and so I'm working on the design of that website. So soon we'll have that. So uh, in, at the moment, yes, through my email. Great. Take care of yourself. By the way. Stay safe and continue to sprinkle your magic. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was really lovely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated. And it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at www.golddustmentoring.com. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.